0: Kathy, you're still here. I am just want to add my thanks to what you guys did last week. Uh, you were kind of the spark plug behind that. That's uh, just a job well done. I think it was uh, excellent. And just so you'll know, the board did vote that we will share that train with the two other churches that are doing Rocky Railroad this summer. And they're already coming to uh, make arrangements to, to get it. So that's good. Well, we're learning a new song this month, Holy Spirit rain down. I think that's a good thing. How many of you are learning it? How many of you could sing? Okay, a few of you are. That's good. You know, compared to uh, God the Father and Jesus, the Holy Spirit is quite unrepresented, or at least underrepresented in our hymnal. I don't know if you've noticed that. There are about 40 hymns that focus on God the Father. There are about 145 that focus on Jesus but only 13 specifically regarding the Holy Spirit. And of those 13, I think that only four of them could be considered familiar, and only one has been sung any time in the last couple of years. So I think it's, uh, it's good that we're learning some Holy Spirit songs. Um, it may also be that the Holy Spirit is somewhat underrepresented in our understanding as well when we think about God. And maybe that's to be expected because the the spirit part is is maybe more mysterious a little bit, uh, maybe l- least spoken of in scripture. So this morning what I'm going to do is talk with you a little bit about what Adventists and other Christians call the Godhead. Uh, some Christians call it the Trinity. It fits the theme of the Holy Spirit, but it's broader. uh, It's more about the relationship between the three, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And it's appropriate, I think, that we review this together. As some of you might be aware, there has been some controversy lately within Christianity, uh, including some of our own churches in in Adventist Christianity, uh, regarding the role of the Holy Spirit. Some say that there really shouldn't be a Holy Spirit, that there isn't really a Holy Spirit, if you can believe that. Um, so, what I want to do with you this morning is simply this, I want to give you a new analogy for the Trinity, a new way of thinking about it, maybe a new way of explaining it, and along the way, we're going to do a little bit of history. I enjoy history, uh, I think it'll be fun. I'd like to tell you that this new analogy is original with me, but it is not. Uh, I read it some time ago in one of Philip Yancey's books, Searching for the Invisible God. If you read any of Yancey, you know that he's an excellent author. That particular book is very good. I jotted it down with the intention of sharing it with you someday. Today is the day. So let's think together about the Trinity for a few minutes. As Seventh-day Adventists, our second fundamental belief states simply, there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons. In contrast to Eastern religions and paganism and New Age belief systems with their pantheon of little deities, Christianity is a monotheistic faith. Mono meaning one, theos meaning God. Christianity proclaims there is only one God, the creator of heaven and earth, the mighty God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's from Exodus. That was Moses teaching the people as they came out of Egypt. And Jesus quoted this, by the way. I am God and there is no other God declares to his people through the prophet Isaiah, I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, and from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I? the Lord, and there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Judaism's great gift to the world and to the church was monotheism, one God. But you don't get very far in the Bible. You can't even get past the second verse without running into the fact That this one God has a plural characteristic. So let's look at those first couple of verses. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. And many of you know this by heart. In the beginning, God did what? He made heaven and earth. Right Right away, not ten words into the Bible. What is the identifying characteristic of God? He's the creator. He's the maker. He creates. Verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We're not 30 words into the Bible now, but already what new thing do we learn about God? There is a second aspect of his person here, a spirit. Now a lot of people say the Holy Spirit is pretty much a New Testament phenomenon, and in some ways they are correct. But the Old Testament is full of references to the Spirit. He's mentioned literally hundreds of times, starting right here in Genesis 1, verse 2, in the context of making, creating. And then in the next few verses follows that story of creation where God and presumably the Spirit are making the earth and skies and seas and filling them with animals and birds and fish. And then we come to the climax of creation, the culmination of the whole story where God makes human beings. And that's the whole point of why God made all the other stuff, is it not? So that he could make us And we come to verse 26, and we looked at this verse last week. God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let us, it says. Now, we assume that God is saying, okay, Spirit, let's you and me, the both of us, let's create human beings now. And from the context of our English Bibles, we'd have to conclude that he's talking about himself and the Spirit, right? I mean, they they are the only two beings with divine creative attributes that have been mentioned so far in the story. And they are plural pronouns. Let us, it says, in our image, it says. I mean, if God were a lonely God, if God were a solitary God like Allah, The deity of the Muslims. Then verse 26 would read, let me make man in my image. But it does not. It uses plural. So it must refer back to where verse 2 says, uh, where where the spirit is introduced, verse 2. That's if we're reading our English Bibles. Is anybody in here this morning reading a Hebrew Bible? Bible. You'll be a lot smarter than me if you are. Uh, If you were reading a Hebrew Bible, there would be something much more fascinating about the pronouns used here. Unlike English... Hebrew nouns have gender, and so their related pronouns also have gender. And there's a lot of controversy in the culture right now about using preferred pronouns when talking about people nowadays, right? I mean, you can even get sued for using wrong pronouns, not gender specific pronouns. But in Hebrew, every noun has gender, and Greeks is the same way. English and Hebrew also have number. either singular or plural. You can have one airplane or two or three airplanes. One is singular, two is plural. Of course, you use the corresponding singular or plural pronouns. One airplane, it landed yesterday. Two airplanes, or more than two, they landed yesterday. But when it comes to number... Hebrew is just a little bit different. In Hebrew, there are not two, but three options for number. You can have singular, which means one. You can have plural, which means more than two. And you can have what is called the dual form, which means exactly two. Not more, not less. English has a hint of this. In our word pair, pair is dual form. It means exactly two. If I buy a pair of shoes, when I open the box, I expect to find two of them in there, not three. In Hebrew, every noun can be either singular or plural or dual form. And, of course, the pronouns correspond. Pronouns can be singular, which means one. They can be plural, which means more than two. And they can be dual form, which means exactly two. No more, no less. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image. Guess what pronoun ending Scripture uses here? Plural, which means more than two more than two. It does not use dual form. So right here in Genesis chapter 1, 29 verses into the story, in the context of creating, the Bible gives us a big clue about the plural nature of God. We meet God, we meet the Spirit of God, And we're we're told through a hint that there is at least one more member, at least one more member, because of the number associated with the pronouns God uses when he speaks. It's not dual form, it's plural. There are at least three. And that third mysterious presence that verse 29 reveals to be involved with the creation is eventually identified in the New Testament as Jesus. John says that through him all things were made, that were made. And Paul says the very same thing in Colossians chapter 1, that by him, Jesus, all things were made. And of course, the rest of the Bible develops that concept, which comes to a climax in the New Testament, where Jesus tells his followers to baptize people into his name, into the name of the Father, into the name of the Son, and into the name of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, of course, comes at Pentecost, and the church explodes in growth. So the church in describing this triune characteristic of the one God, has settled upon the concept of Trinity. One all-powerful God, a unity of three co-eternal persons. Now, this is a very basic Christian belief. Okay, We hold this in common with most Christian churches, but most of us really don't do a lot of thinking about it. We just think, oh, I understand that, I got it, check, All right? We don't realize that it took the very brightest minds of the early church nearly four centuries to come up with a formulation that would last, that would express this concept. That very word person that we use in our second fundamental belief, that word comes out of that long scholarly deliberative process. Early theologians beginning with Tertullian in about 200 A.D., borrowed this word from the Greek theater of the day, the word prosopon. In Latin, it's persona. A prosopon was the mask that actors wore on stage. Theologians chose that word to express how one being could be expressed in three persons. Now, this is an important teaching because God wants people to know Him. But we can't know God well unless we understand how He relates to us. And that requires a basic grasp of this concept. We need to know how He is. See? Now, we say that we believe in one God, not many gods. But some people will say, well, yeah, but that one God is actually three gods Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what Muslims say when they critique Christianity. They say, you Christians, you are polytheists. They say we don't really believe in one God, that we believe in many gods. Is that true? Is it really three gods? It is not. And yet, how do you explain the three-in-one, one-in-three concept in a simple way? Well, oftentimes, we try to do it by using analogies. Sometimes, when I'm sharing with people what I understand to be true about God, I've told them, well, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are like a water molecule. How many of you have ever heard the water molecule analogy? Anybody? A few. A few. Okay, good. You have an oxygen atom, and you have two hydrogen atoms arranged in a kind of an L shape, all right? An oxygen, a hydrogen, and another hydrogen. A three-atom molecule, and when you have it, you've got water. Three atoms, one molecule. If you don't have all those three, if you've only got an oxygen and one hydrogen, you don't have water. And maybe that's a little bit like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that analogy breaks down because you can have oxygen all by itself and you can have hydrogen all by itself and it's still complete. It may not be water, but it's still complete. But you can't have God all by himself, okay? You can't have Jesus all by himself because if you if you did, he wouldn't be God because God is by very nature plurality. He is a community of oneness. And it's not as if God is made out of three parts either. So, sometimes I use a different analogy. I've said the Trinity is like water that can exist in three different states: solid, liquid, or solid, liquid, or gas. Right? This one has some advantages to it because you can see ice and you can see water. And we have been seeing water this spring for about, I mean, just, it is so nice to have a sunny day today, isn't it? We're not seeing any water, you know. But this works because the Bible says that God the Father and God the Son can be seen, and it gives descriptions of them. Daniel, for instance, describes God as the Father, as the Ancient of Days, seated on a throne with white hair, surrounded by billions of angels. John says Jesus was even more visible. He says our eyes have seen him, our hands have touched him, we have handled him. But what does the Holy Spirit look like? I know sometimes like a dove and sometimes like fire, you know, um, and sometimes it's like a fiery dove. I think there's one picture in, in the song run coming up that has him like a fiery dove. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says he's like the wind. You can't see it. Invisible. It's like water vapor. You can't see it. But that analogy breaks down too, because the Trinity really isn't one God that takes three different forms. In fact, during the second century, two guys by the names of Noetus and Praxius began teaching this very thing: that, that uh, God was one being who took on three different forms or states. That sometimes God manifests himself as a father, sometimes he manifests himself as a son, and other times as a Holy Spirit. The only problem is scripture doesn't teach anything like that. It's not, it's not, it's not uh, supported by scripture. So Nodius and Praxius became known as heretics. <laughs> That's a good word, isn't it? Their teaching became known as modalism, the idea that God takes on different modes, but God doesn't morph. He does not transform into different manifestations. <laughs> Scripture describes a God who is a plural community of oneness, oftentimes appearing together, like he did at creation when he was making the world. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together. Let us make man in our image. In other words, Let's make man with plural characteristics. Let's make him a little bit like we are, a community of oneness. And so they made him male and female and brought them together in marriage. So the idea of ice and water and steam kind of falls short. But this idea of marriage, that's a third analogy that people sometimes use the idea of a family. That can represent the Trinity. You might have three family members, a father, a son, and a mother. There are three people, but they make up one family. And this one has some similarity to the way New Test- the New Testament describes certain aspects of God. After all, Jesus describes God as a father, right? And God himself describes Jesus as his son, Hebrews chapter 1 speaks about the supremacy of Christ, and verse 5 says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. But God did say this about Jesus, and you can find it in Psalm 2. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Father and Son, those are family terms. But this analogy is also imperfect for a couple of reasons. First, when you say that the Trinity is like a family, people might get the correspondence between the Father as God and Jesus as the Son, but then they go go on to figure that the Holy Spirit must somehow correspond to who? Mother, yeah. And there's absolutely no biblical evidence for that anywhere. And second, people often stumble across the the idea of where sons come from in families. Where do sons come from in families? They come from the union of fathers and mothers, right? Which means that in human terms, there is a time in a family in which children don't exist yet. In our family, Colette and I sometimes talk about things that happened to us a long time ago. And we say, back in the days B.C., before children. This has been a stumbling block for many Christians over the centuries who think of Jesus in B.C. terms. He's God's son, they reasoned. So there must have been a time when the son didn't exist. A literal B.C. kind of deal. In other words, Jesus came into existence sometime in the past, that God somehow made him, and therefore Jesus is a kind of lesser God. A number of Christian or quasi-Christian groups understand it this way, the Jehovah's Witnesses are maybe the most prominent contemporary example of that, but this idea has been around for a long time. In the middle of the third century A.D., an Egyptian Christian thinker by the name of Arius began teaching that Jesus was begotten. In other words, there was, uh, there was a time long ago when Jesus didn't exist and then God brought him into existence. In fact, Arius taught that Christ was the very first thing that God created. He reasoned partly from Colossians 1, where it says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. So he said that when God started making stuff, he started with Christ, that he was begotten. This is the word that the King James translation uses, unfortunately, in its translation of one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. His only begotten Son. Now people have wondered about that, because it does sound a little like Jesus was begotten, in the sense that he was made by the Father. But this Old English word is a translation of a compound Greek term, mono, meaning one, and genes, which means, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean generated or, me, or made in this context. It means a kind of, uh, like a genus. So the idea is not that Jesus was made or created or brought into existence. The idea is that he is one of a kind. Okay? He is monogenes. The Hebrew term that corresponds to this is the term Yahid, which means darling. Okay? Jesus is God's darling one. He is monogenes. He is unique. There is no one else like him in all the universe. And that's what sets him apart from the prophets of the Old Testament. He is one of a kind. That's what sets him apart from all the other personages who are trivial by comparison, like Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna. They were ordinary people in the sense that they were human beings who had beginnings. They were conceived and born and brought into the world in the normal human way, but not Jesus. Jesus is one of a kind. He is the only one able to save us because he is very God. No one else can do it. He is monogamous, and therefore he is worthy of worship. And that, by the way, is exactly what sets Christianity apart from all the other world religions who follow mere human beings, who had no prior existence, who were born and lived and may have taught some very nice things, but who died and remain in the grave to this day. Jesus is different. There never was a time when Jesus did not exist. John says he was in the beginning with God And there is no power strong enough to keep him from existing. When he laid down his life to save us from sin, he had the power to take it up again. And he resurrected. No one else has ever done that. The other great world religions all follow leaders who are dead and gone. But Jesus is different. He is one of a kind. There is no one else like him. Now, in the third century, this became a big church fight with the ones who believed Jesus to be equal with God lining up on one side and the ones who believed Jesus to be a lesser God, a created God, lining up with Arius. And theologians came together in councils to refute Arius. And I know that Adventists normally take a pretty dim view of some of these church councils, but they had to wrestle with this because there was so much at stake. The early church scholars knew that any teaching that diminished the person of Jesus as God would cripple Christianity. The New Testament's absolutely clear on this. Jesus certainly knew who he was. He said to the Jews who constantly challenged his claims about divinity, He said to them, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. He called himself the very same name that God had given when Moses asked who he should say was going to deliver them from their Egyptian bondage. When Moses asked what name he said he should say was sending him, God said, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And the Bible reports that when Jesus said this, they picked up stones to kill him. Why? Because they understood plainly he was claiming divinity equal with the God of the Old Testament, the great I Am. The Jews knew the score. They knew exactly who Jesus was claiming to be, and they recoiled from him. They were not wishy-washy about it. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. In him was life. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or authority, all things. Were created by him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The writer of Hebrews says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So, when the councils met together, they identified and named Arius' teaching for what it is heresy which, if left unchecked, would have destroyed Christianity. And the Nicene Creed of 325 declared Christ to be, and this is a quote now, God of God, light of light, very God, a very God, begotten, not made, being of the very same substance as the Father. But the battle continued to rage And some historians say the Arian controversy was the biggest controversy the church ever faced until the Protestant Reformation. And Arianism has continued to live on in the church even to the present time. In fact, you might not realize this, but many of the early Adventist pioneers were Arian in their belief that Jesus was not eternal with God the Father. Uriah Smith most published author in our movement's history, the one who composed the first statement of beliefs in 1872, even James White, during the days when these guys were studying their Bibles and, and hammering out our first first fundamental beliefs, they were not Trinitarian in their understanding of God. they were Aryan. It wasn't until The Desire of Ages was first published in 1898 that this Aryan tendency within Adventism was finally laid to rest when Ellen White wrote that in Christ was life original, unborrowed, underived. Where'd she get that? hmm? She got it from the Nicene Creed. That's where she got that. So that's a little bit of the history of the teaching of the Trinity in, within Christianity, and it also shows, I think, that the analogy of a family is not a perfect one either. So what I'd like to do now is share a new analogy of the Trinity that I read in Philip Yancey's book, and this will not be a perfect analogy either. It's still a mystery, okay? A mystery is something that you can't quite figure out. doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to figure it out. It just means it doesn't have a very easy answer. Now, Philip Yancey cites a book by Dorothy Sayers, who was a remarkable woman who had two seemingly unrelated careers. Uh, She was an author of detective stories, and her series was aired over PBS, uh, the Lord Peter Whimsey series. I don't know if anybody ever ever watched those, Uh, but she was also a kind of a lay theologian in the same tradition as G.K. Chesterton and and C.S. Lewis. In both of those endeavors, whether she was writing detective stories or writing theology, she would track down mysteries with kind of wit and ingenuity. And in her book, The Mind of the Maker, she follows the trail of one of the most profound mysteries, the Trinity. Here's how she reasons. And remember, this is only an analogy. She says that we understand God best by thinking of him as a creative artist. And I think that would fit with what we understand about God so far. I mean, over and over again in scripture, the, the, we're told that there are two attributes, two signature attributes that God alone possesses or that he does. Okay, And they are, they are what identify him as the true God. We've already looked at both of those this morning. One of those attributes is his ability to tell what's going to happen as if it had already taken place. Remember what he says in Isaiah 46. I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. God can do this not because he's clairvoyant, People tend to be clairvoyant. God is not. He is above time. He is outside of time. He's not bounded by time in the same way that we human beings are bounded by it. He sees what's going to happen as if it's present tense. And he says to people, This is one of the two ways that you can know that I am the Almighty God of the universe, that I am real. The other signature attribute is that he creates. Just a few pages back, in Isaiah chapter 45, he says, It is I who created the earth and made mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. Genesis 1 introduces us to God in the very first chapter as both trinity of oneness and as creator. All the way through the Bible, God's ability to create from nothing is what sets him apart as the mighty God, worthy of worship. This is why neo-Darwinism is such a pernicious, evil teaching. It strips God of who he is. And at the very end of the story, it's once again his creative power that becomes the defining issue at the end of time. You all know this. Revelation's last message to the world is fear God and give glory to him because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who did what? Made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. We have tended to think that the issue that will separate God's people from the wannabes at the end of time is the Sabbath day, right? But maybe the real issue will not be a day, but rather what the Sabbath day stands for, that God is the maker, and therefore that he deserves worship. That issue is already playing out all around us. Maybe we're waiting for a day when the issue is already here. Hmm? Stuff doesn't just make itself. Life doesn't just pop into existence. It's funny how, how people believe that kind of stuff, even though it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. They just accept it. It's just dumb. Stuff exists because God made it. That's why it's here. This is what Genesis 1 and 2 are all about. God creating an artistic masterpiece called Planet Earth. Our home and us. So Dorothy Sayers says that if we imagine God to be like an engineer or a watchmaker or as just some sort of powerful force, we're bound to go astray. We won't get it. But if we imagine him as a creative artist, his image shines. She says that in any act of creation, there are three phases, three stages there is idea, there is expression, and there is recognition. She says that by thinking about these three stages of creating, we can begin to grasp the idea of the Trinity. Part of what God has given human beings by making us in his image is the ability to create. Now, we don't create stuff out of nothing, but we do art in hundreds of different forms. Some of us do it better than others. I can apply Dorothy's idea of the creative form that to, to the creative form that I use somewhat regularly, and that is writing a sermon, okay? But an artist who paints or sculpts, or quilts, or writes music, or builds furniture, or designs buildings, could apply it to his or her art form just as easily. Each time I write a sermon, it starts with an idea. I read books, I listen to other sermons, I listen to speeches, I watch life happen all around me, and I'm constantly attempting to find an idea, to formulate an idea, and that's the difficult part for me, by the way, getting the idea. In fact, when people call me on Sunday or Monday and want to know what the sermon's going to be about, usually it's a musician, a musician because they want to begin to have something to go with it that augments it, you know? I mean, when that happens, I have a panic attack. I'm serious. I mean, when Sabbath is coming and I don't have an idea, that is terrifying. And Sabbath comes with terrifying regularity. Have you ever noticed? It does. Sometimes I'll tell the person, I don't know what the idea is yet. Let me finish it. When I'm done, I'll tell you. The idea of a sermon or a painting or a term paper or a new kitchen is only the first stage of the creative process. Stage two is expression. Expression. Expression for me usually begins on Friday morning when I sit down with my notes and my books and my thoughts and begin to write. I write sermons using the medium of nonfiction prose, although I will admit that some of the illustrations sometimes border on fiction. But ideas can be expressed in all kinds of medium. John Wesley wrote sermons. His brother Charles wrote hymns. Every artist chooses a medium: poem, prose, opera, rock music, photography, fabric, steel and concrete. The medium is what expresses the idea. Sometimes the expression can change as the idea doesn't end up exactly as as it is planned. Sometimes stuff gets cut because it makes the idea less clear. Just this morning, I cut a paragraph. As I was eating breakfast, just, that was not good. Philip Yancey says that when he writes a book, he cuts an average of 100 pages from every manuscript. Can you imagine that? He just cuts it entirely out. Now, I know some of you would probably be pleased if I were a little bit more like Philip Yancey. And cut a lot out, you know, to, to learn to cut ruthlessly. But for me, the act of creation isn't finished when I'm done on the computer. Another person has to receive it. And that's stage three. The one that Dorothy Sayers says is recognition. Recognition is happening right now as you hear what I have put together. Hopefully, it's happening. That is, maybe a little bit is happening. Here's the thing human beings create for one purpose to communicate. So the creative process remains unfinished until at least one other person can receive it. A successful work of art, no matter what it is, summons up a response in the receiver. I know the sermon is a failure when I look out, and it's just a bunch of bobbleheads out there. It's just glazed eyes, you know, or people are texting the person beside them in the pew. It fails not usually because the information is bad. It's usually because it's a failure to connect. Now, here's where Dorothy Sayers draws the analogy to the Trinity. God the Father is the idea, she says. He is the essence of all reality. I am that I am, he introduces himself to Moses. And that phrase might be better translated, as Yancey says, as I will be whatever I will be. Everything that exists, everything, flows from that essence. In the beginning, that essence, God, created the heavens and the earth. The creation is the expression of that essence and we can learn a whole lot about God through what he has made, you know, supernova, aardvarks, redwood trees, especially human beings. We can learn a lot about God from human beings who are made in his image. But God the Son represents the perfect expression of that essence. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. The writer of the Hebrews says the exact representation of his being. Paul wrote, he is the image of the invisible God as Jesus. In other words, if you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. The final step in God's creative revelation came to fruition at Pentecost when God actually took up residence inside human beings. Something of God's essence, that same spirit who hovered over the waters of creation, now lives inside flawed people giving us the recognition of a new identity. It is by the Holy Spirit that we are able to cry, Abba, Father. It's by the Holy Spirit that we are able to recognize that we are sons and daughters of God now. And with that, God's act of creation reaches its climax. In terms of Dorothy Sayers' analogy of the artist, Here's how she says it works. She says it works now. God wrote a story into motion on planet Earth, and He set the characters free. Every artist, just like every parent, knows what it's like to create something and then turn it loose in the world for others to do with what they will. Creation means letting go, setting free. And in God's case, that meant allowing human beings to spoil everything. But here's the thing: God wasn't content to allow unruly human characters to spoil the plot. Instead, he devised ways to enter our story. John wrote that the Word of God, who has who has been one with God throughout all eternity, the Word who actually was God, he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In three short years, Jesus did more to convey God's essence than all the prophets who wrote before him. Hebrews says that in the past God spoke to our forefathers at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son. Jesus told his followers, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And when Jesus was preparing to leave the earth, he gave his followers a Trinitarian formula, commissioning them to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit fell, it was a whole new ballgame. Philip Yancey concludes this with an interesting statement. He says, That in the unseen world, there's absolutely no confusion about how three persons can be one God. But on our side of the curtain, we learn about the Trinity the only way that time-bound creatures can really learn about anything. We learn about it in sequence. We learn about God the Father primarily from the Old Testament, then We learn about Jesus primarily from the Gospels, and then we learn about the Spirit primarily through the book of Acts and the letters. Each one helps us to understand God a little bit better. Why? So that we can know Him. So that we can know Him a little bit better. And that's what it's all about, knowing God. So that's the new analogy, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, idea, expression, recognition. I hope maybe it'll give you something to think about, and I hope maybe it will help you on your journey to know God a little better. Okay, let's sing. And this is uh, another song from outside the hymnal on the subject of the Trinity.